With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives. All while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Pandora Sykes, your guest presenter for this very special episode of the Women's Prize podcast. You've joined me for a live bookshelfie, where one woman will share the story of her life through books by five other brilliant women. Hi everybody, welcome to our very special live recording of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. I'm journalist and broadcaster Pandora Sykes and I am joined in Bedford Square Gardens by a fantastic audience and a fabulous guest. If you would like to share the event online, please use the hashtag Women's Prize. Bernadine Evaristo is an award-winning number one best-selling writer a professor of creative writing and an activist who endlessly campaigns for inclusivity within the publishing industry. In 2019, she became the first black woman to win the Booker Prize with her eighth book, the polyphonic novel Girl, Woman, Other. The same novel also earned her a spot on the Women's Prize shortlist, and this year she's on the other side of the fence as the chair of judges. Bernadine's next book, Manifesto on Never Giving Up, an urgent and powerful account of staying true to yourself and to your vision, comes out next month. Welcome to the podcast, Bernadine. Hi, good to be here. I'm so glad that we have this gorgeous weather today. I have an absurd belief in pathetic fallacy, so I'd like to believe this is for you and your literature that you brought it. Fantastic. (laughs) And this is my first live event since um, um, March 2020. So it's really unusual seeing actual people sitting in front of me with breathing, smelling, smiling. (laughs) It's really surreal, isn't it? What was it like chairing the Women's Prize judging panel this year? Has there been endless Zooms? Um, Actually, we met in person um, for most of it. So it, it was fine, yeah, because there were the various lockdowns, and so we were able to meet and... um, and uh, thrash out our arguments and talk about the books that we liked and so on. She says not giving anything away. (laughs) Is there lots of arguing? Because when I talk about books with friends, there is always that someone going, oh, I just couldn't get on with it. And you're saying, you mad, it's incredible, it's the best thing I've read this year. Does it get quite heated? Well, the thing is, you know, um, I've been teaching creative writing for a long time and we talk about books all the time. And... I know that there is never a single book that everybody feels the same about. So it's the same when you're judging a prize. People are bringing all kinds of things to the judging process, including their personal tastes. So yes, we had lively debate. (laughs) Very diplomatic. The 2021 Women's Prize winner is announced this week, and you are being incredibly careful. I told you how excited I was to see who you picked, and you barely even allowed a nod you were so terrified of giving anything away what are you and your fellow judges looking for well you you'll know by now won't you what have you been looking for in the winning book well I think the prize is um there to um pick books that are original accessible and excellent so those are the three main criteria And then, of course, we bring our own expectations um, to our judging process. You know, for example, some people might want to be entertained. Some people might want to um, read books that are engaging with some of the big issues of the day and so on. So there is such a variety of opinion and um, expectation, I would say. 
So it's, it's hard to boil it down to anything other than what the prize itself stands for. We're here today to talk about your favourite books. Have you always been a big reader? Yes, I started reading as soon as I could independently. And uh, so reading has been part of my life since I was, I don't know, four or five. And I used to go down to the local library in Woolwich, where I grew up, every Saturday and pick up a number of books. I think it was probably two or three. Read them during the course of the week and then and take them back. I think, I think reading, in a sense, rescued my childhood because there wasn't a lot to do. Um, we didn't have much money, um, and so I needed to find a way to entertain myself, and I did that through reading books. And also, because I grew up in the 60s and 70s, television was really limited then. You know, there was no, thing, no such thing called the internet. Um, mobile phones did not exist. Phones were very immobile you know, stuck to the wall, actually, in the 60s, literally um, stuck to the wall. So what did you do with your time? You know, um, you played with your siblings. I come from a family of eight. Um, but for me, reading was where I, I went on my adventures. And, um, and so I'm really grateful to have grown up at that time, actually, because literally there were no distractions. I didn't have to struggle with the internet or social media and how I was presenting myself publicly. Um, and then my, my reading suffering as a result. And if I hadn't have been a reader, I wouldn't, have been a, I wouldn't be a writer. I wouldn't have become a writer. Let's get on to your favorite books. Your first bookshelfy book is The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. The Bluest Eye is Toni Morrison's heartbreaking and powerful first novel, published in 1970. Set in Lorraine, Ohio, it tells the story of Bacola Breedlove, who prays for her eyes to turn blue so that she will be as beautiful and beloved as all the blonde, blue-eyed children in America. It's a book about race relations, family, and trauma. What did you love about this book? So... Toni Morrison has consistently been my favorite author ever since I first read that book. Um, and she is such a beautiful writer, such a deep and complex writer. And she just evokes such amazing worlds through her fiction. And this was my introduction to her work. And, and growing up, as I did in the 60s and 70s, there were no books by or about black writers in Britain. So black women did not feature, black girls did not feature in the fiction of my country. And so when I read this book, even though it was set in America, um, and my, my life is very different to the, the world that's described in that book, I saw the story of a black girl. And it was just incredible to see that. It was an incredible validation. And also she was a black girl who was, had been told she was ugly. And I have to say, especially at that time, most black children growing up in majority white societies were not seen as beautiful, even though this was before Benetton even, you know, let alone Edward Denenfull and Vogue and the way in which he's represented such a wide range of, of womanhood. So this was a time when the ideal of beauty was, was blonde and blue eyes. And so this is a little girl who's told she's ugly and she's longing to have blue eyes and she's got this fantasy that she's got blonde hair and blue eyes. And so it's a very touching book. And she's actually living in a, in a really difficult family situation. She loses her family, essentially. And she's kind of spurned by people because she's not considered beautiful. And yeah, to Toni Morrison is a writer who I think engages the intellect and the emotions. And this was my introduction to her work. So it meant a lot to me, this book. How old were you when you read it? I was probably about 22, I would say, yeah. What 
was your childhood like? You talk about how, when you were growing up, there weren't any books about black girls in London. Did you look to books by American authors, or did you just find that you were only reading stories of white children? They, they were only they were white books, you know. And I think when you're young, you don't realise that. You know, you're not, as a six-year-old, you're not thinking, I want to see myself represented in the fiction of my country. You know, you're just reading the stories and enjoying them for what they are. It was only as I got older, you know, by the time I was becoming politicised, feminist, you know, growing into my black identity in my late teens, that I realised that my education had been so white. You know, and we are talking about a very long time ago, and I, you know, there's always a context for this. But at the same time, it's still a bit like that today. So um, that's still a problem. But um, yeah, I, I, I then realized what I had been missing in my childhood. Um, but also my father was Nigerian, my mother white English, but he didn't pass on his culture. So, so there was nothing in my childhood that really told me that being a person of color was a good thing because it was a very racist society in the 60s and 70s, legally racist until 1976, actually. So, so, yeah, so that absence did not help build my identity as a young woman. I had to, to start afresh, and, and Toni Morrison was one of the writers who helped me do that. Why is representation in fiction so important, particularly for children, do you think? I think, I think children need to see themselves. You know, they, they need to... You know, fiction needs to be a mirror of themselves in some way. And if you don't have, if you have that, you know, if you feel that children who look like you are present in, in the fiction that you're reading as a child, you probably don't even notice that that's what's happening. But if you don't see it, then I think it can affect your self-image and your self-esteem. I have a little uh, relative who, when she was seven, year, seven years old, she said to me, oh, I really like your hair, you've got good hair, because my hair's quite loose, and her hair's much tighter, and she's Nigerian, very Nigerian origin. And I just felt heartbroken, because I thought, this is what little girl said in my childhood, and this is somebody a couple of years ago saying to me, you know, and I just thought she needed... And so I then had to go to America, to be honest, to get the books that present black children in black stories so that she would start to see herself and to start to feel better about who she is in this society. Did you always have ambitions to be a writer? No, I, was, I wanted to be an actor. So I went to a youth theatre from the age of 12, Greenwich Young People's Theatre, um, now called Tramshed, and that was my introduction to the arts, and I absolutely loved it. I loved that space. I, I think, when I think back on it, I think it was the youth theatre was where children gathered who probably felt they didn't fit in elsewhere, and you were accepted at the youth theatre. It was a place where outsiders were accepted, and so I felt very accepted there. And I was the only black girl there for most of my time there, but it wasn't an issue. You know, I, ne I never experienced any kind of racism. I felt very, very welcome there. And so then I got into theatre, and then I um, got into theatre at school, and at the age of 14, I decided I was going to be an actor, and that was my first profession. So I went to drama school and then started writing plays because I needed to, because there were no plays um, by or about black women in Britain in the um, late 70s, early 80s. And so, so through that, I became somebody who was writing... How did you develop your writing? Do you still feel like you're developing your writing? I do, yeah. I think, I think when you think you've, you've reached a point of arrival, that's probably, you know, 
when you're going to start to deteriorate creatively. I think you're always, I think you need always to de developing your skills. And, you know, as, as a writer, I have grown as a writer, but with each book, I do something differently. And, um, and each book it has a different ambition for me. So yeah, it's, it's an ongoing process for sure. Your second bookshelfy book is Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. In this collection of essays and speeches written in the late 70s and early 80s and largely considered her most influential work of nonfiction, particularly in contemporary feminist discourse, Audre Lorde calls for intersectional feminism and supporting women of colour, the importance of using your voice to speak up against injustice, the horrors inflicted by US imperialism and capitalism, and her personal experiences of oppression. Can you tell us a little bit more about this book and why it resonated with you? Yeah, so I actually brought my original copy, which was the um, 1984 copy, because I'd met her a few times, which was great. And, you know, um, Audre Lorde didn't have a massive reach, I think, until about until the Me Too movement a few years ago. And then suddenly a lot of people became very interested in her work. But she meant a lot to me when I was a young woman. I'm just going to read a really brief um, section from the book. This is um, the transformation of silence into language and action. I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. And then she says, what are the words you do not have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them, still in silence? And that was so potent um, for my generation to read that because this was, uh, you know, I was very much part of the second wave feminist movement. And there were so many silences in our lives and so many ways in which women had, and I hate to say it even today, have been silenced. And here was this really powerful woman, a generation older than us, saying, speak up, say what you need to say. You know, oh, it's gonna kill you, right? And I think, I think each generation of women needs to learn that. But for me, reading that gave me the, the strength and the power to become somebody who did speak up. You know, in my early 20s when I was running theatre of black women and creating plays and, and being very, very politically engaged. And it was because her generation was saying to us, do it, speak up. You know, uh, you, you have a right to have um, equal rights in this country, to be taken seriously, to have equal opportunities. And, and we as women, whether we're women of colour or not, have that. And sometimes it's still a struggle to achieve that. So, so yeah, she was, she was, you know, one of the early trailblazers in terms of, as you said, you know, intersectional feminism. Because she was a lesbian as well. And she was unapologetically black, lesbian. And she would say that. And she would look at gender and class and sexuality and all those things that weren't being looked at together. And feminism at that time was very white. I think it's much more intersectional now, which is how it needs to be. And so she was a real warrior. And, you know, she led the charge. It's incredible how potent those words, and her words still are, 40 years on. Her writing on self-care being a political act feels so relevant now, when obviously self-care has become a buzzword. And you read what she wrote 40 years ago, and it just 
feels so current, so meaningful. Mm. Um, she has talked about the devastating impact of overextension, which I think is particularly interesting now for this time where we use a lot of words to describe various things going on, whether it's the word toxic or the word gaslighting, these words that get bandied around quite a lot. When you read her writing, does it bring you back to the truth of what matters? I feel like she was writing about so many things 40 years ago that people are dissecting now in the mainstream that weren't being dissected in the mainstream. It's, it's, she's definitely, well, certainly recently, you know, in the last few years, she's gone mainstream. I think, as I kind of said, I think the things that she was discussing and the arguments that she was making all those years ago are still as relevant today as they were back then. And it's, you know, talking about the kind of vocabulary and terminology that's bandied around at the moment and, you know, the, the idea of people being woke and cancel culture. And it just drives me nuts because that, that, that those descriptions have been weaponized basically by not always by, by, by right-wingers, by the right-wing media, to turn people against the idea of social progression. And it used to be politically correct was the word, you know, and it was, oh, they're politically correct. What does that mean exactly? Or even the idea of identity politics. You know, it's like, well, whose identity politics are you talking about? If you're a black person or you're a woman and you're arguing for something, you know, in terms of your race or gender, then it's seen as identity politics. Whereas actually, you know, the white male still establishment, you know, the, the Eton elite and so on, they have a very strong identity in this country. But because, because they are, you know, they have always been there and, and um, they are the default we are, we are supposed to accept that and not see it through the prism of identity. So, so I think we're always being assaulted. If you read certain papers and magazines and columnists, they're always attacking essentially the idea of social progression by banding around these words that have become incredibly weaponized. So, so language is really important and I think we have to stay vigilant and we have to be critical of this and we have to speak out against it. You co-founded the Theatre of Black Women in the 80s, and you've mentioned earlier how you wanted to become an actor before you wanted to become a writer. Did this book influence you to use your voice? You've mentioned in your 20s how it kind of encouraged you to, um, in your confidence and to be true to yourself. And in your BBC documentary, you mentioned, which I love, that lots of people say to you, come across as very confident and when watching the documentary I felt like that but you said well I wasn't always like that I wasn't like that in my 20s I had to had to build it did this book help you build that confidence I, th I think she did because because she said speak up you know you have a right to be heard and to speak up I I think that in my late teens early 20s I was quite shy although the funny thing about about memory is that people who knew me then say you weren't shy I said no I was they said no you weren't shy so who knows who knows um is memory a fiction or not? How much of it is just about how we choose to interpret the past? But I, I have been opening my mouth and you know, giving my opinion ever since I was in my early 20s. And increasingly now, I have a much bigger platform for it. In fact, in the last two years, a, a massive platform for it. And that has been wonderful. But if I had come of age at a time when there were not 
feminists around writing, if the books that were, you know, the books that I've mentioned and other books weren't around um, writing from black women's or women's perspectives, um, if, um, if people like Audre Lorde weren't telling us to speak up, if I had ignored feminism, say if they were doing all of that and I had ignored it and the many women have ignored feminism, not wanted to engage with it, then I would not be here before you talking. I would not have written all the books and had the career that I've had because I needed to hear that as a young woman. This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by making a one-off donation to support our important work as a charity. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. Your third book is The Bone People by Kerry Hume. This is a novel about the complicated relationships between three outcasts of mixed European and Maori heritage, which won the Booker Prize in 1985. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, so this, um, it did win the Booker Prize, and that's how it came to my attention. I think it was the first Booker Prize book that I read because I hadn't been interested in that prize up to that point because it just wasn't... The books that seemed to win it weren't the kinds of books that I was interested in reading at that time. And then here was this woman who was um, part Maori winning it with an, what was an experimental novel, The Bone People. And I remember the critics were quite damning about it. And I was like, this, this is outrageous because I think, I think the critics were probably more out of control then than they are now. <coughs> Now that I think they can be much kinder. But then they were really damning about this book. And then I read it and I absolutely loved it. And every so often I revisit it. It's, it's, it's about this woman who is living a very isolated life, um, living in a lighthouse um, on the coast. And it's about her relationship with a seven-year-old mute boy and his father. And it's they're all very unusual characters. And she, this woman in Kerouin, is a very eccentric individual. She's unlike any kind of fictional character I'd ever seen before. And I think she was, and I think the author did say it was, she was loosely based on herself. Um, so it was just this extraordinary novel that was very fragmented and playing around with form and also very poetic, writing this very unusual story about this woman who ends up looking after this seven-year-old mute boy who's washed up by the sea and nobody knows where he, he comes from. And then his father comes into the picture and his father is um, you know, abusive towards him. And it was just different. Everything about it was different. And that was what I was looking for with my writing and still is. I like, I like stories that are different. I don't want to read the predictable kinds of stories that are, you know, that actually often do very well in this country. And you know, with my um, television entertainment, I like thrillers, I like crime dramas, and they're really formulaic, unless they're brilliant, uh, whatever language they're in. But actually, 
with my fiction, I like really unusual literary fiction. That's, that's really my preference. She spent 12 years writing The Bone People and more trying to get it published. And when the book was finally taken on, it was by a tiny feminist press in New Zealand led by three women called Spiral. And two out of three of the women were also uh, of Maori descent. And it wasn't until Spiral took it to Hodder and Staunton, who published many more copies than they were able to do, that it was brought to the attention of the Booker Prize. You've spoken many times about your frustrations with the publishing industry, what gets published and by whom. Do stories like this galvanise you? Absolutely. And I think, I think it's really sad, actually, that the publishing industry, um, although it's changed very recently, has not included so many diverse authors, you know, authors of colour. And so there have been generations of stories that we haven't heard and, and that's, I think that's tragic and it's sad and it's not too late for that to change. And certainly in the last few years, that started to change. But when you hear about the journey, the journeys of some of the, the books that are out there and that do really well eventually, it was the same with Ben Ockery's The Famished Road. I mean, I think he had 100 rejections or something. Nobody was interested in it and then it won the Booker Prize and it went out there to readers and readers, you know, absolutely got the book. Because we have, you know, we do have gatekeepers, obviously, that's who they are in the publishing industry, who, um, who will make the decisions about what they think is good literature and also what they think will sell. And even with Girl, Woman, Other, right? I mean, I've been with my publisher 20 years, and so he has published every book that I've produced. But I, I wonder if that book had gone out to publishers, you know, a few years ago, that might have been easily been rejected. It was only that it, it, it did so well and that it won the Booker that people then, I think, possibly forget that that might not have been the case because nobody else had written that kind of book before. And so if you are writing something that's different, that's slightly experimental, it's going to be a harder journey for you and especially a harder journey if you're a person of colour because the publishers will think there is, there is no market, there's no readership, blah, 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 blah. And often they are wrong about that. You won the Man Booker in 2019 for Girl, Women, Other, and you mentioned earlier how much your life and your career has changed in the last two years. What do you think the impact is of that prize on writers? It depends on the writers. You know, um, Margaret Atwood won it with me for the second time. So she's, she, no, she's won it before. I think if you're a writer who hasn't broken through to the mainstream, then that is definitely what this prize does for you. If you are already a, a celebrated, famous writer, then I think it will have less of an impact on your career. Um, and certainly for somebody such as myself, after you know um, being a writer for 40 years and publishing books since 1996, the, the transformation of my career has been incredible. You know, literally overnight, everything changed. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed what's happened to me because it has been such a long time coming. And I don't take it for granted, but I'm also incredibly grateful for it. So, so the Booker Prize is such an important prize that it is career changing. And um, it, it, it gives a book a stamp of excellence and authority. And that is a wonderful way for a book to go out into the world. What impact did winning the prize have on you personally? Were you, was there a moment where you were completely taken aback or were you just, I'm here for this, let's I'm here go. for this, I'm here for this. 
<laughs> totally. I, you know, I've done a lot of public speaking. I've done loads of interviews. I, you know, I've been active in, in the arts and literature for so long that I could ride the waves of everything. You know, I can imagine if you're very young and it's your first book, it's probably overwhelming. And we know that some writers don't never write another book or never write another novel, or they take 20 years to do so. But actually, because I am so experienced and um, you know, I have such strong foundations in my creative practice that it was just something for me to capitalize on and you know, to enjoy. And I also feel, I feel that Nobody wants to hear me complain about my success, you know? And I, I think writers shouldn't. It's like, no matter how painful it is for you, just accept that you're in a really privileged position because there are hundreds, thousands of writers out there who are not in your position, who would die to be in your position. So for me, it is a 100% positive thing that's happened to me. You said in your brilliant BBC documentary, Imagine, if you haven't watched it, watch it. I had hoped that I would break through. It just took a long time for me. Are you glad, in light of what you were saying, that sometimes if it's someone's debut novel, they take 20 years to write the next one? Are you glad it was your eighth novel that won, rather than, say, your second? Or do you feel frustrated that it didn't happen earlier? No, totally. It happened at absolutely the right time. A, a miracle that it happened at all. B, at absolutely the right time. Because, you know... I'm very aware that there are trends. You know, writers have their moment and then they kind of fade from view. So it's great to be having a moment at 60, which is when I won it, and to know that I have this backlist that is also um, now being read by people. Um, I don't regret not getting it earlier. Perhaps if I'd had it 20 years earlier, it would, be, would have been harder to handle. Whereas with every book that I write, my attitude is it's going to be different to the one before and I'm going to write the book that I want to write and that is absolutely my attitude with the, with the books that I'm going to be writing going forwards. So it was, it was a perfect time at the age of 60 to, to, to receive this accolade and no regrets whatsoever. It's so lovely to hear that there's no element of it feeling like a poisoned chalice because you do no. read about writers who... Well, of course, Sally Rooney's new book is published today, and you know, there's so much about can it live up to the hype, and is this as good as the others? And that's an extraordinary pressure. It is, but, but you know, my, my new book, Manifesto, is memoir. <laughs> so I kind of dodged that bullet for now, haven't I? Because <laughs> if, if I was publishing another novel, there would be comparisons. But you're not really going to be comparing a memoir with a novel. So, and, and the memoir is about how I became the person who write the books, wrote the book. So, um, yeah, it's a different beast. Your fourth bookshelfy book is The Joys of Motherhood by Bucci Emicheta. The Joys of Motherhood is among the Nigerian novelist's most pivotal works, published in 1979, which challenges the idea that a woman's primary role is to be a mother, as well as offering critique on colonialism and patriarchy, amongst other things. Can you tell us what you loved about this book and why you've chosen it for your bookshelfy? So, Buchi Emicheta was a Nigerian writer. She died a few years ago. She came to Britain, I think, in 1960. And she was actually what, uh, among the first of the Granta 20 top writers under 40 
1984, which was an amazing honor for her to be there, included a black woman especially. She became a writer. She had five children by, the, by her early 20s and um, I think an abusive husband. And so he left her or she left him. And then she just wrote, she just wrote books. She wrote over 20 books and she trained to be a social worker. She worked in a library for a while and raised her children on her own and was a writer. So she was a phenomenal woman because she did not have support. And we're talking about the 1970s when it would have been just tough anyway. And um, my father was Nigerian and when I read The Joys of Motherhood, which was, um, I think it was published in 79, it was the first time I read a book that had a character like my, as I imagined my father's mother to be. So my father came to Britain in 49, married my mother and never saw his mother again. We never met his mother. She died in 1967 and didn't know anything about her, but I did know that she was an illiterate petty trader in Lagos. And the character of Nu Ngo in, in um, The Joys of Motherhood is an illiterate petty trader in Nigeria at about the time that my, my grandmother would have been there as well. And it's, it's, I think it's an exceptional book. It's a classic. And even today, people haven't heard of Buchi Amacheta in this country. And I just I think they've got to cotton on to her works because she was a fantastic writer. And she was writing stories mainly set in Nigeria, historical, contemporary, as well as some work set in this country. And um, she was writing about a Nigerian woman uh, living in the first half of the 20th century, which was a really unusual thing to do because most of the literature was by men. And some people would, will have read um, Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, which has been on the school curriculum for 100 years. And you know, this book is really the counterpart to Things Fall Apart because it's a woman's story about her growing up in a very traditional Igbo culture. And her role as a child and eventually a mother is to get married and have, have male sons. That's it. That is, that is her role in life. And she does that with some degree of success and then her sons leave her. And um, she also loses children, but also, you know, one of her, I think two of her children go to, to live in America. And she's left on her own. That's what my father did. You know, he left his mother and went to live in America. And so this is a very personal book for me. And most of the books that I read are, and that I enjoy, and they're not telling my story. I don't really see myself in most fiction, to be honest. And I know a lot of Readers feel differently about that. They want to see themselves in the fiction. And I want to see black characters in fiction, but I don't really see my life or anything to do with my life. But this book is how I imagine my grandmother lived. And so it's very, very special to me. And I think it's a great book. It's, it's quite hard hitting. And a lot of the books I've mentioned are quite hard hitting, um, which I'm not in the same way. But I just think when you when you start to get, when women have a voice to talk about the things that haven't been spoken about, um, whether women or black women or women of color, and they're writing from the, their positions as women about cultures where women's fiction and voices have been suppressed, you're gonna get some really hard hitting stuff. You are not gonna get guys writing about girls being sexually abused, but you are gonna get women writing about girls being sexually abused. And actually some of the books that I've mentioned have got that in there because these are the things that need to be talked about and explored through fiction, through the arts, and they haven't been.
they haven't been. So when, when you know, with, with The Bluest Eye, that has a girl who's sexually abused. And I, I read that when I was a young woman. I didn't know anybody who'd been sexually abused by their parent. So, you know, it's incest. And it was so shocking. And you imagine she wrote that in 1972. And that book was banned for years from parts of America because it was about sex. You know. um, but yeah, so, so there are so many things that need to be explored through fiction. And we, we're just, I think we're still skimming the tip of the iceberg even today. And again, you've chosen a book that was published over 40 years ago, but still feels so resonant in so many ways today. I mean, that deadpan title about motherhood, I remember when I came to the book about 15 years ago, I assumed it was going to be a celebration <laughs> of motherhood. It's only really now that you see people having that slightly kind of deadpan, ironic take, again, in mainstream books about motherhood, which is just That's true. another That's true. illustration of you saying how this book wasn't as well-known, perhaps, as it should have been. What, just to go back to what you were saying about never meeting your father's mother, what impact did growing up without a sense or any knowledge of your Nigerian heritage, what did that feel like? How do you think it shaped you? So my, my childhood was very white, really, even though, you know, my parents were together. They, they stayed married 33 years. But it, I, didn't see, I didn't see other than my siblings and a few people here and there. Everything, everything was white. And so you're, you're seen as different because you're a person of colour in that society, especially at that time. This is not the same as walking around London today, right, where nobody's going to pay any attention. Um, but maybe walking around other parts of the country, you might get, you know, people will clock you because you look visually different. So you look visually different, but you feel the same, you know, because you're just a child growing up in a culture. But you don't see anything, anything that, that reflects back who you are in that society. And so without the Nigerian heritage, which would have been a sort of counterweight to that, um, I, think I, was, I think I was a bit lost. And of course, this is all said with hindsight, but I just did not have that str a strong sense of being a black person or a person of color or having a Nigerian heritage growing up because I knew nothing about Nigeria, nothing. So my father didn't pass anything on apart from a stew that he cooked on a Sunday. Um, and then he put okra in it. And it was like this, the gooey okra. So that puts us off that for the rest of our childhood. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Do you think this lack of knowledge about your heritage drove this career-long commitment to seeking out and writing untold stories? Absolutely, yeah. I, yeah. It's all positive. I see it all as positive, you know, because I became a writer of the stories that I've written, theatre and then um, books and, and other works, because I, I just felt so passionately that we needed to claim the space for ourselves and that there are so many things to explore that are so interesting and so fascinating about who we are in this society that hasn't been explored. And so that has totally driven me. And that is rooted in my childhood, where it was so absent from the culture around me. Your fifth and final book this week is Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Set in Florida in the early 20th century, Their Eyes Were Watching God explores the life of Janie Crawford through her marriages to three men. This book was published over 80 years ago in 1937 and was initially poorly received. And you've spoken today and in your documentary about the importance of bringing books to the fore that were written a long time ago that didn't get the attention that you feel that they should. What is it about this book that resonates so much with you? 
So this, this book was actually rediscovered by Alice Walker. I think, I think it was in the 70s. So Zora Neale Hurston was an incredible woman. Uh, look her up. Uh, she's, she's, uh, she was way ahead of her time. Uh, she was a member of the Harlem Renaissance, and she was very independent, and you know, she was a very productive writer. She was also an anthropologist. You know, she really, she really was a trailblazer in many ways. But then she died in poverty, and her books went out of print. And of course, that's, that's the other tragedy, is that sometimes the books have been there, and then they disappear, which is why with Black Britain Writing Back, which is a series I've curated with my publisher, Penguin, we're bringing back all these lost black books. And so Alice Walker, you know, another African-American woman, decided that she wanted Zora Neale Hurston back in the light, and she was brought back into the limelight. And I think, I think they've made at least one or two um, films about this book. And it is a really special book because it is a beautifully constructed novel about an African-American woman, she's um, age 40, looking back on her life. And it's also about how her relationships with men, how she has struggled with her relationships with men who have dominated and controlled her. And if you think that this book was written in 1937, that was way ahead of its time to be writing about that. And so she, she, she has a husband who doesn't want her talking to anybody in the vicinity. Um, and you know she's, she's just always struggling to have agency in her life and for her independence. And eventually, she, ends, she does end up alone. And she ends up back in the community where she came from. But she's seen as a bit of an outsider because she is a single independent woman. This is an incredibly feminist book, although she would never have obviously called herself feminist or suffragette or whatever. But, but it's just beautifully, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book and it is a classic and it's the kind of book you could give to anybody and say, read this and I, I would hope that they would love it um, as much as many people have done. In Imagine, you refer to your career as 40 years of bloody-mindedness. How has that funneled into your next book, your first memoir, Manifesto, and what can we expect from your memoir? Um, yeah, bloody-mindedness. Um, I think, as, as women, we're not supposed to be bloody-minded, are we? We're supposed to be um, sweet and nice and polite and passive and um, unambitious. And, I, you know, it may sound that that's not the case today, but I think there is, that still exists um, in our society. We're still living in a patriarchal society, not as bad as the one I grew up in, but it's still, it's still there, it's still prevalent. You know, when you get the statistics of who is achieving the numbers of women um, in certain um, professions, for example, it can be very shocking. So I'm, I'm, I'm a professor at university, and there are 17,000 professors in this country, but there's only 30 black women, 3-0. Um, that's a ridiculous statistic. And then you think, oh, well, it's because black, you know, women, black women aren't good enough. Well, of course, that's not the case. There are so many, there's so many reasons why people don't progress up the career ladder in, in, in various professions. So, Manifesto is um, looking at my heritage and where I come from and the people I come from before I was born as well as my parents and looking at how my creativity has been shaped from then onwards. So I look at my, um, my living conditions and my relationships and um, my writing process 
So it's very personal, and it's looking at how my creativity has been shaped through the course of my life. Before we finish, I have one final question. If you had to choose one book from your list as a favourite, and I hate asking you this because I would hate to be asked it, but I'm going to anyway, which one would it be and why? I think it would be Sister Outsider because it's a book of ideas. And so it's a book that is constantly challenging me to, um, to think deeper and differently about us our situations in this society and so it'll always be intellectually stimulating for me and um, yeah so I think it would be that one thank you so much to Bernadine Evaristo and to everyone who came to watch us today thanks very much thank you I'm Yomi Adegoke and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media as you may have seen, excitingly, Bernadine Evaristo and her fellow judges have now crowned this year's winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction, Susanna Clark with Piranesi. It was called Ultimate Escapism and a mind-bending trip by this year's judges. If you haven't read it yet, you definitely should. Please click subscribe because in our next episode, we'll be exploring five incredible books by women that shaped comedian Catherine Ryan in a live episode from Latitude Festival please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>